0: They don't turn me on unless I have a singing voice. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Announcements that I have for you. A couple of things. Um, We have, for those of you who don't know, and then maybe those of you that are watching online as well, we have set up a classroom that used to be the place where we would have um, babies care downstairs. We call it the Purple Room because it has a purple banner above the door of it. Um, But we have the live stream going down there. We have some new comfortable chairs for parents to sit in as well. And then some um, toys for kids that are crawling around or need a little bit more than what that small little room. The past couple of weeks, that room has been packed. So um, we've opened that space up. We are still moving towards having some childcare in that room as well. And so we just want you to know that that is available. And as you're inviting friends or that sort of thing, um, we see you. We see you. And um, we just want to serve you as best that we can in the midst of all the transitions that, uh, that are going on as we're back into real life. Um, also, I'm really excited um, because on February 5th, we are going to gather here at 6 o'clock PM, that's a Sunday evening, for Ignite. And for those of you that haven't been, you don't know what that is, Ignite is Brookview's family meeting. And so it is where we get real. We talk about what's going on, how God is moving among us, where we're heading in the future, and we spend some time just praying and worshiping together as well. And so I hope that you will mark your calendar and come and be a part of that. We will have child care for that, and that is in the form of a pajama party with popcorn and a movie, so the kids get to hang out next door while you get to um, be with family here. Um, So that's 6 to 8 p.m. You do not need to RSVP for that. However, I would love to try and find a babysitter or two for babies, if that would be nice for you. And if that is you, please let me know. I would like two weeks' notice to be able to do that. Um, Probably if you RSVP and tell me that you want baby care the day of, I'll say, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. But I'll say it nicely with the winky face emoji. Um, But you can text the Brookview number. You can fill out your online communication card. If you have my cell phone number, you are free to reach out to me for that. And I'll work on finding specific targeted care. So the movie and the popcorn is for, like, mobile kiddos. And, you know, we can't keep it completely safe with popcorn um, for your babies. So we would like to provide that if you need it. Also, I mentioned last week, by now, if you gave to Brookview and donated in 2022, you should have gotten a giving receipt in the mail. If you did not, something happened, and we would like to get that to you. And so if you reach out to the email, brookviewgiving at gmail.com, we will make sure that we get that to you and that we sort out whatever address issues we were having that came through the postal service. So... Um, I didn't go UPS or FedEx overnight on those. Just kidding. Okay. Go online and talk to us. We love hearing from you when you fill out your communication card at brickviewchurch.com forward slash contact. It's cool for us to be praying for needs that you have um, and just hearing from you. So that's it.
1: First of all, Jen, I don't think she's in here at the moment, but just to clarify. Oh, there you are. I believe God can heal lep- leopards. I, there's, no, there's no historical record of it that I'm aware of, but he can heal lepers and leopards. We believe in a God of miracles, yes? Second of all, that song, uh, the, I love the song that's behind the intro piece. Does anybody know the band? Gunger, yeah. So good. That has nothing to do with anything as far as where I'm going. Uh, but I do, I wanna start this morning with a, just a light question. What is the meaning of life? What, what is life all about? Like, what is the most important thing in life? What's the one thing that if you miss it, you miss everything? I mean, can life even be thought about in that way? Is, is it too complex and interdependent to reduce like that? Um, in this series, we're thinking about what God is up to. For, for all who are willing, he, he will begin transforming us into something. Like, like a, pat, a caterpillar's transformation to a butterfly, God longs to turn us into something surprising, something beautiful. But what will that look like? Like if, if you give yourself to the Father, if you give yourself to Jesus and you say yes, then what sort of you is coming in the future? Well, according to Jesus, the answer is, is all wrapped up in the, in the meaning of life. And according to Jesus, it actually can all be boiled down to one thing. And so what I want to invite you to do this morning is stand as I read his words over you. Um, and as I read this, try to take in the significance of what he's saying. It's a very famous passage, Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. And by the way, I always say it's a famous passage, and I've realized everything Jesus said is famous. But I happen to really like this one. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Dun, dun, dun. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, you guys can be seated. Late in the first century B.C., a young Gentile, okay, non-Jewish God-seeker, made a trek across the Mediterranean to visit Israel in order to search out the great rabbis of the day. And he found the the two most famous in the land, okay, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, and with dramatic flair, he stood on one leg in front of them, okay, and the crowd, and he said, I can't even ask the question on one leg, teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. So Rabbi Shammai, angry and offended, chased him off with a stick. But Rabbi Hillel turned to the crowd and said, what is hateful for you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. Everything else is interpretation. Now that story is found in the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a window in time when people were asking questions about the most important commandment in the Torah. And the Torah, uh, sometimes just called the law, is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. And it contains 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments. Okay, and on top of that, there was a book of rabbinic teachings called the Mishnah, which contained 1,500 more commandments. So when there are hundreds or even thousands of commands, you start asking the question, okay, which one is the most important? And the rabbis would argue back and forth about it. And they said that some commands are, are heavy, meaning they're like weighty, they're important, and others light. So secondary or, or less important. But really, the raging debate of the day was simply this. What is God's vision for human flourishing? What is God's vision of human flourishing and what is that aligns with reality itself? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? Like, this is the question of the human condition, not just for first century Jewish culture, but for every generation, right, for every culture. And today, I want us to think deeply about the answer Of Rabbi Jesus I want us to look at his response to the question in its original context and that means okay for a few minutes you guys we are going to do a a deep dive Um, we're gonna plunge into some deep waters like Hebrew words and and technical stuff okay (laughs) and then I promise we will come up for air okay okay so if we follow Jesus and this is his answer to the biggest human question, then it's really important that we understand what he's saying, what he is saying, and what he's not saying. Okay, so let's, let's dive into this. First, the context of the conversation, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are massively rival political groups. They are not friends. They are adversaries. But they both see Jesus as a threat, and as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my my friend. So they're working together, attempting to trap Jesus with loaded questions. It's like they're playing a, a game of theological kung fu with Jesus, and they keep getting their butts kicked. Okay, So they conference up to try a new move, a new punch. So verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, okay, or in the Torah? So the Pharisees, they send in a legal expert, like one of the best, the best of the best, whose job was to interpret every nook and cranny of the Torah. Now, in the modern day, this would be like an elite lawyer, you know, somebody that's been practicing for years and is the best of the best and graduated from Harvard or Yale law or whatever. Um, we, now, for us, we separate state and religion, so it's hard to envision Uh, an attorney being a religious person, but in Jesus' world, there was no such separation. So this expert lawyer comes to test Jesus. And that word can also be translated to trap or to trip up, meaning he's not coming with humility and openness and curiosity. He's coming with his mind already made up and he's hostile to Jesus. He's hoping that Jesus will slip up and say something to condemn himself. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now notice there are double quotations here. Jesus' answer is a quote. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a command from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, so let's go and look at what he's quoting in its context. This is Moses speaking to Israel right before they go in the land, right? They have come out of Egypt. They've traveled through the wilderness. God has been with them through all of that for 40 years. They're about to actually go into the land. And here's what Moses says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children, Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Now this command that we just read is called the Shema. Or if you say it like you're Jewish, with like Hebrew flair, it's like Shema. Right? <laughs> Falafel, right? Shema. And, and I think it has a really, I think it has a really cool sound to it. Um, kind of reminds me, I, I've mentioned this, but our family's been watching The Chosen. And in the show, there's a, there's a Pharisee, a, a rabbi Pharisee named Shmuel. And Brooklyn is so into the name. So we'll, we'll, we'll be watching the show, and she'll just, all of a sudden, she's just sitting on the couch going, Shmuel, <laughs> and it's like Jesus is teaching something really important. You know, it's like the Sermon on the Mount, and we're getting to the apex. And I look over, and Brooklyn's just going, "Shmuel." <laughs> so, so anyway, um, Shma, Shma is Hebrew, okay, for the word here. So here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then here comes the command that. Jesus says is the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, the word love is not the word that would be used for romantic love, which existed. Even though feelings can certainly arise along with it, it means to give your loyalty or your allegiance to one that you trust. And this command doesn't just appear suddenly in a long list of rules. It comes in a story. And the story is that Yahweh has just freed his people uh, from Israel from slavery because they cried out to him. And in his compassion, he rescued them. He miraculously delivered them from Egyptian oppression. And then with supernatural acts of kindness, he provided for them in the desert for 40 years, right? He provided water from a rock. And then there's, there's bread that just fell from the sky and was on the ground in the morning. And then there was quail that just flew in by the droves. And they're like knocking them out of the sky with tennis rackets. He, he, like, he guided them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. He gave them victory over bigger, stronger armies that attacked them. So he has rescued, protected, provided, and guided them. And now the command is to give him their allegiance and trust. So after receiving the love of God, they are to give that love back with all their heart, soul, and strength. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word, the word heart is lavav in Hebrew, and it, it does not mean the organ in your chest. It, it is, it's a metaphor for like your inner center, your, your thought life, your emotions, your, your freedom of will. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. Um, and in our culture, like when we think of a soul, most people think of this like invisible, immaterial part of you that's trapped in your body, and then it gets released from you at death, right? But for Hebrews, your soul isn't some invisible inner part of you. It's simply your whole person. It's, it's your life force. Your soul is the all-encompassing who you are. So in Hebrew thinking, you, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. Your, your soul isn't a part of you. It's, it's all of you. So love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Now, the Hebrew word for strength is me'od. And it doesn't mean how much you can like bench press or leg press, which is good, because in my case, leg press. I got bird legs, so (laughs) that would not be good. So your strength is not physical. Your strength is the totality of all your capacity mayod will will sometimes be translated as wealth love god with all your money all that you have some scholars suggest mayod is best translated as your influence love god with all your influence so loving god with all your strength is like saying god god here's everything here's my career here's my education here's whatever platform i have Here's all the relationships that I have. Here's whatever networking capacity I have. Here's whatever gifting or talent I have or favor with other people that I have. God, here's my mayod. I give you all my strength. Also, um, just to point out, when, when Moses says to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, we live in the West and we're like, oh, let's get real technical with that he isn't trying to divide a human being into three distinct compartments. Okay, this is not a scientific work of anthropology. It's it's Hebrew poetry. It's simply a Hebrew way of saying, love God with all that you are. Okay, so don't, don't get all technical on this. It misses the point, you know, like, wait, God, which part of me is heart and which part of me is soul? And oh, wait, 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 God, I thought that part of me was strength. And which is, stop it. Okay, the point is simply don't compartmentalize or compromise. Don't give God part of your life and then hold back other parts. Uh, and this is cool. The Shema isn't just a command. It actually is, it's a prayer. And to this day, thousands of years later, like 3,000 years later, Orthodox Jews pray the Shema twice a day. It's this whole life orientation toward uh, a life of, of love and trust and yielding to the love of God. So, okay, back to Jesus. He quotes Moses, and then he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it. Now, did they ask about the second greatest commandment? No, he gives it to him anyway. It's like, bonus. So he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, notice the quotations. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, this time Leviticus chapter 19. So again, let's go to the original quote and context. Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, but I want to I back up a little bit. He starts in verse 18. I want to back up a little bit and just read this command as it comes in its context. And notice, as I read through this, notice the kinds of stuff that God cares about in this passage. Okay, so let's start with verse 13 and make our way to verse 18. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, But, and here comes the command, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice in context what that command is all about. I mean, first of all, you guys, it's about justice. It's about how we treat those that are weaker or needier or below us somewhere on the social hierarchy. We are to treat them with love and respect and dignity. But before some of you like social justice warriors Go, go, go ape and just get all hyped. This is also about how we treat our enemies. Like, Did you catch that? So that would include those on the wrong side of issues that we are really passionate about or to bring it closer to home, those who hurt us or gossip about us or limit our opportunities or degrade us in some way or take from us or reject us or mock us or wound us, we are commanded to love them, our neighbor, as ourselves. Now, we are not told to love our neighbor instead of ourselves. This is not saying, go be a doormat. We are to to love our neighbor, not instead of ourselves, but as ourselves. So we are to treat our neighbor with the same love and respect as we treat ourselves. Friend or enemy, rich or poor, same side of our issue or different side. You guys, can you imagine if everyone in our world actually did this? The vast majority of issues that we read about in the news would disappear. Right? Most of the world's problems would just vanish overnight. Just psh. Thus, Jesus' closing line. He says, all the law and the prophets, okay? in other words, the entire Old Testament to, that, to, to his day, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So these are the two themes, Jesus says, that everything else in Scripture hinge upon. These are, now, there, there's some really interesting images if you go out on the interweb. So I, just to throw this up there, you can't possibly read all of that, but you get the idea. Every bit of the Bible has something to do with these two themes, right? It's, it's all just subcategory of one of these two ideas. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that, that you guys, that is the deep dive into the ancient world. How painful was that? <laughs> it was great. Thank you, Rebecca. God bless you. Sister, so okay, let's come up for air. Here we are. We're We're, we're a, th- a few thousand years later, right? We're on the other side of the world, in a totally different context, and yet most of us are here because we we are apprentices of Jesus, right? Meaning we're we're learning to be with Jesus, so we can become like Jesus and do what He would do if He were us. So how do we take this and live it in our time? Let me just give you a few thoughts. Number one, let love be the measure of your spiritual maturity. Let love be the measure of your spiritual maturity. It's so easy to miss the main thing when we start shooting for the wrong things. Now, the religious elite in Jesus's day were, were that uh, r- religious sect or, or political sect called the Pharisees, and they were insanely devoted and deeply knowledgeable. And yet, they often missed the whole point. Uh, John Mark Comer says it this way. He says, The Pharisees would Sabbath every week, fast twice a week, pray the Shema two times a day, study the Torah all the time, and that they were still, on the whole, judgmental, defensive, close-minded, mean, and unsafe to be around. You can measure spiritual maturity in so many ways that don't include love. Like, how much, how much Bible and theology do I know, right? How much do I attend church? How much do I go to a life group or church groups or whatever? How much do I read scripture and pray? How deeply do I feel God in an, at an emotional level? Like, when I worship, do I feel shivers and, and passion? A few decades after Jesus in, in uh, the city of Corinth, the church that had gotten started started, started going astray. And they started measuring maturity by all the wrong things. Like they were measuring it by supernatural expressions of the Holy Spirit. They were really into that. They started measuring it by spiritual knowledge and ability just to speak powerfully in the, in the congregation. Or by extreme devotion and sacrifice for Jesus. And so it became like this spiritual competition that was actually preventing people from becoming loving. Because they were competing with each other. So Paul, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 13, and he just says, knock it off. This is awesome. He says, verse 1, "'If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, "'but do not have love, "'I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. "'If I have the gift of prophecy "'and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, "'and if I have a faith that can move mountains,' but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he paints that famous picture of of what love, okay, what agape is like. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. But for whatever reason, many who say they love Jesus miss the point. Like uh, John Ortberg uh, writes of a sad example of this at a church where he was a pastor where he worked. Um, Let me read this. I think this is This is such a, like, you're gonna go, oh, I think I knew this man. Um, Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news and oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head, so he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. His was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy He paused to reflect, then replied without smiling, Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell your face, the deacon said. (laughs) But so far as anybody knows, Hank's face never did find out about it. Occasionally, Hank's joylessness produced unintended joy for others. Uh, There was a period of time when his primary complaint centered around the music in the church. It's too loud, he protested protested to the staff, the deacons, the ushers, and eventually the innocent visitors to the church. We finally had to take Hank aside and explain that complaining to complete strangers was not appropriate and he would have to restrict his laments to a circle of intimate friends. And that was the end of it, so we thought. A few weeks later, a secretary buzzed me on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see me. I'm here to check out a complaint, he said. As I tried to figure out who on the staff would have called OSHA over a church problem, he began to talk about decibel levels at airports and rock concerts. Excuse me, I said. Are are you sure this was someone on the church staff that called? No, he explained. If anyone calls, whether or not they work here, we are obligated to investigate. Suddenly, the light dawned. Hank had called OSHA and said, The music at my church is too loud and they sent a federal agent to check it out. By this time, the rest of the staff had gathered in my office to see the man from OSHA. We we don't mean to make light of this, I told him, but nothing like this has ever happened around here before. Don't apologize, he said. Do you have any idea how much ridicule I've faced around my office since everyone discovered I was going out to bust a church? (laughs) Sometimes Hank's joylessness ended in comedy, but more often it produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he once might have had, for joy or wonder or gratitude, atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller each year. Here's what I'm saying. Don't be a Hank. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a a Corinthian. Like, does going to church and reading the Bible and praying matter? Yes. 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 Is it valuable to learn scripture and have heartfelt worship? Yes, but not as an end in themselves. All of it is done to produce something in us, to produce love. If it isn't ending in love, it's all just a noisy gong. It's just a big adventure and missing the point. Okay, second thought. We need to make sure, number two, that we we define love as agape. We have to define love as Jesus defined it, not as our culture defines it. Um, In our culture, we we think of love as a feeling, like as affection for or attraction toward someone or something. Um, When we say, I love that, we often mean, I like it. I have feelings for it, or or we mean it as like desire, as in, I love tacos, or whatever. (laughs) And by the way, um, I do love tacos. You guys, anybody know our favorite place to go after church? Azteca? Azteca? Uh -uh. Uh, Uh-uh. I don't have anything against Azteca. If any of you have family that work there, whatever. But you guys, we go to El Rinconcito on 196. How many of you know where I'm talking about? Oh, dude. It's right by the convention center. They got tacos and sopes, and you guys, it's so good. It's just like authentic street style. And they have the, now, they have a, now they're it's not in COVID, they have a little salsa bar, right? So when I say, I love tacos, what I mean is, I want to consume them. <laughs> and often, in our culture, love means, I want to consume it for my own gratification. And, and this is not altogether different. When, we, when we're even talking about people. When we say, I love someone, from God to our boyfriend or girlfriend, sometimes we mean, I want to consume it. I want to take from it, not give to it. In our culture, love can be all about self-gratification. In our culture, we put self at the center of love, not God or neighbor, which turns both God and other people into objects for our personal gratification. So by agape, Jesus is not primarily referring to a feeling, even though often there are feelings that arise in our heart. And it's definitely not a desire to take from another person. Um, I love the definition of agape by theologian Michael Wilkins. He says, Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purposes. me read that again because that's a mouthful love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to god's intended purposes and this is why loving god with all our heart soul and mind matters so much We get a sense of what God is up to in our world, a better understanding of what truly leads to human flourishing, and then we give ourselves away to others to bring that about. We don't take from them. We give to them. To love another means we will their good, and we're willing to sacrifice for it. Like, sacrifice what? Sacrifice anything. Like money, time, energy comfort Uh, it's assessing the relationship and sincerely asking what does this person need to flourish and the reality is the answer to that may not be what you want to do at all Uh, it may require doing hard things things like rebuking or correcting or calling them out right this is all a part of agape when jesus said to peter get behind me satan that was agape Why? Because Peter was headed in completely the wrong direction. When Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That was agape. When Jesus prayed for his executioners, Father, forgive them. That was agape. So we have to let love be the measure of our spirituality. Love defined as agape. And then um, as, and then as Jesus did. And then one more. We need to see loving God and loving people as inseparable. Which, if, if you're an introvert, it's kind of like, ah, that sucks. <laughs> I kind of like going off and listening to worship music and reading my Bible. People. See loving God and loving people as inseparable. And in the Leviticus quote, uh, when we see it in context, we see this picture of, of neighbor what does it mean to love our neighbor? Well, it turns out it means loving real people. It's, it's easy to love categories of people. Have you noticed this? It's easy to love categories of people that are in our imagination. It's easy to love the idea of church. Right, and then you sit next to somebody at church and you start talking to them and you're like, they're weird right, or they're judgmental, or, okay, it's easy to love the idea of church. It's easy to love the idea of a spouse. It's easy to love the idea of a life group. It's much harder to love your actual neighbor, people in your real life, people you are in relational proximity to, and not always by choice. People who are different from you, people who sin against you, who hurt you, who frustrate you, who annoy you. It's one thing to love your dreamed-up neighbor like some fictional person. It's a whole other thing to love like your neighbor-neighbor. People in Jesus' world, um, they were not transient like we are in our world. So most people lived in the same place with the same people their entire life. So they were not able to self-select like a really cool neighborhood with cool people that were in their same demographic, with their same interests, and like the same IPAs. (laughs) Most people were born and they lived and they died in the same small village. And now in our culture, because of transience and all sorts of other factors, many of our relationships are, are so highly transactional. Like relationships of choice that we choose based on our gratification. Okay, I like this person because I feel they move my life goals forward, so let's spend more time together. Now, that's not all bad. That's not, not at all. But if we only allow relationships into our lives that are self-selected, it impedes our ability to become people of agape. True agape loves its neighbor, whoever that neighbor happens to be. Now, to become a person of, of that kind of love, like a deep kind of love, Our culture would say that we must first love ourselves. And there's more than a little truth to that. Particularly if you grew up in a family that lacked an abundant or even adequate supply of love and affection. But I I think an even better strategy than saying first you must love yourself is to say first we must let God love us in the deepest places of our woundedness and in the hidden places of our inner wickedness. We must let him take up space, take up residence there in the most bent, broken places and love us from the inside out and transform us into people who radiate the love of God. Like remember, the the Shema assumes the love of God. The people that it commands to love God, they have already been very well loved by God. It's, it's the same order as in the, in the New Testament. I think of 1 John. John, 1 John writes, we love him because he first what? Yeah. Because he first loved us. There's an order to this. And, to, and to the degree to which we live in the love of God every day, to, that, to the degree that we experience that love by the Spirit through prayer and community all around us, and we bask in it and we just let it seep into the marrow of our bones, is the degree to which we will radiate that love to others. Okay, so back to our question. What is the meaning of life? Well, according to Jesus, it's really simple. Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple and it's that beautiful and you guys, it is really stinking hard to do. So I just want to close with three really random, not connected thoughts about this. and the first one is, is like the great criticism of Christianity. Like if, if the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is love, this is what people are asking all over. Why has Christianity done so much evil? And, and we can all think of atrocious things that have been done in the name of Jesus. Maybe you think about the Crusades in the Middle Ages, right? Christians with swords taking land in the name of Jesus, slaughtering thousands in a convert-or-die crusade. Or I think of how European colonist missionaries treated indigenous peoples, right? Like what was done all over North America and South America in Jesus' name. I think of Christian landowners using the Bible to defend slavery, I think of Christian men and their brutal oppression in so many times and places of women. I think of the witch trials that were like common practices, right, in colonial times. The murder of innocent women by the church in the name of Jesus. I think of multitudes of innocent children molested by priests and then church structures conspiring to cover it all up. I mean, I just, I think of, of the many, many churches that lack grace and lack love. And I think of the countless hurting, uh, broken people that are cast away from their church in some of their greatest times of need because they're going through a divorce or because there's, a, there's an a- unplanned pregnancy or, or you fill in the blank. Like the atrocious things done in Jesus' name are innumerable. So, so people are like, well, so that doesn't that then invalidate Christianity? Doesn't it invalidate Jesus? And I will tell you that for me, it it doesn't at all. And here's why. None of that stuff is Jesus or the way of Jesus. The human capacity for evil is astounding. Human beings are selfish by nature. Right? We, We hunger for power, hunger for wealth, hunger for glory. And throughout human history, have used anything we can to pursue those things. And that includes Religions of many kinds. So this doesn't make the life or the teaching of Jesus invalid. It just displays the capacity of human beings for wickedness. A Christianity not based on agape isn't the way of Jesus at all. Jesus isn't the problem. His way isn't the problem. Manipulation of religion for selfish pursuits, that's the problem. Okay, but then So we can get really angry about all those wicked people who don't represent our faith very well out there. But it it leads to you and me. We have to have a little humility. Do you ever use Jesus for selfish pursuits? Do I ever use Jesus in a manipulative attempt to gain something? I mean, how often is my love of Jesus really just a selfish pursuit? Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. You guys, if I'm honest, this is not always my primary motivation. Some of you are like, it's not? I'm out of this, church. (laughs) It's not. Am I I growing toward this? Surely. Do I have thousands of miles to go? Surely. And so that, that leads to my second thought. Love lived is kind of scary for me. Because agape is at the center of all that it is to follow Jesus because it's so easy to make Christianity about something else. Our two-word mission statement at Brookview, right, is love lived. Our ultimate mission isn't to know the Bible or have perfect theology. That stuff matters. We want to get that as right as we can. But it is not the ultimate measure. Our mission isn't for people to develop extreme devotion, right? To to go to church and never miss and read scripture and pray and fast and do all this stuff. Again, that stuff matters. It's helpful. But it isn't the ultimate thing. Our main goal isn't like spine-tingling worship experiences. Now, do do we want heartfelt moments of worship with killer music? Doggone right we do. Yes. But even the most spine-tingling music without love... To Jesus, it's just a clanging gong. So we've made our mission the great reminder, right? It's just a great reminder for us. This is what we're about. We're about love lived. And so why does that, why does it scare me? It scares me because I fall short of it every day. I still have all kinds of junk in me. I know that I do. And if anyone looked, if you just followed me around in my day-to-day and watched what I do, you'd be like, Oh, shoot. And then if you, like, got into my head and my heart, you started to see my motivation, you're like, oh, shoot. (laughs) You guys, there's just just so many moments where I fall short of what I'm saying our mission is together. And our church is going to fall short. And it does fall short. You guys, I don't, this is not a perfect church. It's not filled with perfect people. It's filled with flawed but forgiven people. People that are a mixed bag of love and selfishness. But people, many people that are sincerely apprenticing to Jesus, they are learning to be with him, to become like him, so that they can go and do what he would do if he were them. And so I I think about the the sign on the back of the sign that's out front by the road in the corner there. Anybody, you guys notice that, right? What does the back, what does the back side of the sign say? On this side, Do do you ever, when you get in the parking lot today, you should look. Just says love lived, Right? And so, all of the people in our community that don't want to go to the four-way stop and just cut through our parking lot every day, (laughs) may God strike them down. They see that, right? Love lived. And that's what we're about. Like, rightfully. That's what we're about. But it, it scares me because, you guys, it leaves us open to all kinds of criticism. Right. So there's times where I actually have nightmares of, you know, that's that's what we're known in the community of saying we're here's what we're about. We're about love lived. And it's not going to be very long before somebody gets hurt or wounded or misunderstands something we're doing. And they just use that phrase to mock us. Right. Like, oh, there it is. Love lived. Right. We aren't going to get it right all the time. We're not like this is the target on the wall and it must remain the target. Any other target is a distraction to the way of Jesus. Yet, we will surely fall short. We will not hit the bullseye most of the time. So if you make the goal knowing the Bible or theology better than other people, or if you make the goal organizing your life around spiritual practices and activities, or if you make the goal like spine-tingling moments of worship, here's the deal. You may eventually be able to achieve the goal in your own mind. Yay. See, but, but if you set out to live love, I'm just telling you, failure is a part of the deal. And so how is it that so many Christians are, are self-righteous and, and judgmental? Well, I think it has something to do with their measure of spiritual maturity. Because if the measure is agape, it can only ever produce humility, ever, ever. And that, that just leads me to one final thought. If agape is so hard to live, why bother? Like, why try? And I guess I'd simply say, because without agape, nothing changes that really matters. I mean, Christianity without agape brings, just brings more evil every time. But Christianity based on agape changes the world. And I could give you example after example of the beauty that has come through authentic followers of Jesus living out authentic agape. They have changed families, they've changed neighborhoods, they've changed towns, cities, and nations. I mean, you think about our own nation has been deeply impacted by followers of Jesus when they live agape. This has been negatively impacted by those that do not but it has been deeply impacted by followers of Jesus who live and embrace agape. One of them was a man that had a national holiday on Monday. Right, MLK. And he saw injustice and oppression through the eyes of Jesus. And he stirred a whole nation toward agape. But like given his wounds and all that he had endured and all that he had seen, he could have and would have, you would say, he would have been well within his rights to encourage his people toward hate. And yet his message was consistently a message of agape, of grace and love. And that message has deeply influenced our nation. I mean, think about the heart of that famous speech in D.C., I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands With little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And then he links all of this to the coming of the kingdom of God. This is so beautiful. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. This is scripture. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Jesus is inviting you and me to see the world through his eyes with agape. Jesus says, you want to know the purpose of life? Here it is. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And to every one of us, no matter our flaws or failures, he extends the invitation, the opportunity of a lifetime. Follow me. Become my disciple. Become my apprentice. And I will enable you to do one day what you cannot do fully yet. I will make you more and more into a person of agape. So come, follow me. Father in heaven. Our world needs this. Our world cries out for it day after day after day after day. And Jesus is our picture of what agape looks like. Jesus is the picture. Jesus is the model. And so, Father, would you help us to humble ourselves and to learn from the rabbi? the purpose of life. To love you, Father, with all that we are and to learn to love our neighbor as ourself. Amen.